good morning planet earth this is your host hacker mike coming at you from the heart of new jersey the suburbs of trenton also known as princeton south we had a great episode the other day at an evening recording and now we're back to the morning routine. Jocko said, get up early and get your workout. Well, it's 3.23 in the morning, full moon, Mars is straight above me. Venus is not to be seen, but it's really dramatic. The clouds are covering the skies and the moon is just peeking through. Clouds are moving at a high speed. It's humid. It just rained the other day. New Jersey is basically swampland. This whole area has got about a million streams leading to the Delaware River. And it's a constant fight to pump the water out of the ground and to channel it so we can build our McMansions. But there's some nature left here, the preserved open spaces, preserved farmlands, and of course, the hundreds and hundreds of acres that don't really pay taxes because they grow two trees on them, owned by people who probably got the land from the British. So, history is alive and well here in New Jersey, let me tell you. But we at least we have high-speed internet. We have Fios. I recently set up my <clears throat> Cat6 cable. I had it lying around for a long time. And I finally figured out that you can't use Cat5Ns on a cat six cable because the cat six cable the wires are just a little bit thicker so i got the gold plated expensive ends for my cables and you can actually pull them through so i don't know if you've ever created your own network cables but when i worked at worldcom mci worldcom before it was MCI WorldCom, it was just WorldCom in Germany. I was working on billing software back in the 90s. And I would go down to the ground floor where they had the NT, they had the uh, switches from Nortel. And uh, <clears throat> these Nortel switches were leftovers from basically World War II. Something like that. Canadian company, actually. Northern Telecom. Anyway, the guy's... The the boss of the department, he said, You want a patch cable? Here, make your own. And he pointed to me at the crafting table. And he's like, Here's all the pieces you need. You can make your own cables. And they showed me how to do that. So I guess I'm kind of old school. I... 
I do buy ready-made cables at the um, Habitat for Humanity store and uh, wherever else I can pick them up for cheap. I got lots of patch cables I bought or got from somewhere. But uh, I got a thousand foot of Cat 6 off of Amazon. I got the crimper. And important is get to pull through RJ45 connectors and get your colors straight. And I got the little test device that told me I had my cables wired backwards. <clears throat> so you need all that. You need someone to help you maybe. <sighs> I had to call my wife and had her read me the numbers that were flashing on the test device. It's like, oh shit, she, she had them backwards on that one end. Yep. So that's my little story, my little life here. But that's not why you guys are listening for. We had six listeners on yesterday's podcast, which is pretty good. And I'm assuming you want to come back for some more spicy topics. So we left off when we were studying the Chinese and how they implemented mass vaccinations. And it was the League of Nations. And the lady was describing in that one podcast <coughs> how they were actually hunting down people where they actually, the League of Nations officials, took it upon themselves to track down and hunt people to get vaccinated who didn't want to get vaccinated. And um, this was before the Communist Revolution. Now, we're going to hear about how propaganda is the main tool for vaccination because forcing people is just too much work for them. If you're not compliant, then If you're not compliant, then it just causes them headaches. So they would rather use propaganda than than use the uh, the force on you. That's what we're learning. So we're gonna uh, place queue up these clips, and we're gonna listen to um, to the rest of that uh, that talk. And then I got some new stuff queued in. I got the random podcast from the No Agenda producer, Ben Rose, who said that Mr. Uh, Rogan is already being sponsored, uh, already being uh, censored on Spotify. And it's funny that he's, his guest is Miley Cyrus. So I guess... Um, Mr. Rogan is really going to turn into a uh, promoter of all things pop soon. So we're going to listen to that and look for clips that we can take. And then I got a whole bunch of other podcasts. We got the Gary Knoll has something on Wikipedia I want to listen to. (sighs) 
yeah and um so about the uh, new york state and the chinese and their implementation of communist chinese methods um we were bantering about that idea and it just occurred to me that maybe so if you look at the chinese model where they lend you all this money, but they take your city as collateral. So what they did in Montenegro is they said, hey, uh, oh, we're gonna build you this great highway to your port city. You don't have any superhighways in, in Montenegro. So we'll build this for you. And they have an enormous interest rate. And if you can't pay it, no problem, we'll take your port and your port city will just own that. Oh, and by the way, the highway has to be built by the Chinese companies. So what if New York has actually fallen to the Chinese, let's say? Theoretically, no. You know, we owe them so much money and they're like, well, you're never gonna pay it back. So we're just gonna take New York, okay? And it'll be quiet. We won't tell anybody. You don't have to tell anybody. Um, it's just going to be, you know, just implement these laws for us. Implement totalitarian policies. And uh, you'll just pretend that it's a normal state, but in reality, it's controlled by the Chinese. Just imagine if that happened. Just as a thought experiment. I have no proof at all. It's just a wild idea. Well, we're going to think about that for the next couple of days, and uh, let's queue up some clips. Well, maybe I forgot to mention that we do have a call-in number. It's 609. 609-429-4144. And uh, we had actually our first caller leave us a voicemail on this number. We played it on last show. And uh, <clears throat> there's other methods to get in touch with me. We're on Telegram, on the Twitter. And um, you can also sign in on Anchor FM and uh, follow us. So... Send me a text to that number, whatever. Get in touch. And, um, yeah, so this will be a live show, just to remind you guys. And we're going to add clips as we go. So, if you think, well, why is this podcast 10 minutes? It's not 10 minutes. This is a live recording. So in our first clip from the existing podcast, from our last one, we never finished that, so we're going to finish that. And I'll just give you the name again. This is Mary Augusta Brazelton, Mass Vaccination in Citizens' Bodies and State Power in Modern China, Cornell University Press, 2019. And uh, we're clipping that. And she's going to just talk about the difference between the vertical and the horizontal approach, the top-down or the grassroots up 
and how they're actually intertwined. I thought this was just an interesting insight that she had, or interesting definition that we throw in there, just give you something to think about. Or kind of just contributing to the field of international health, um, you see consistently cited the fact that China has controlled infectious diseases within its borders as uh, one piece of evidence that its rural health systems are successful, that they are workable and viable. Um, and what's interesting, I think, is that in the history of global health, um, primary health care, as the WHO's approach kind of came to be known, um, this kind of grassroots rural health system, um, that's typically regarded as constituting what's called a horizontal approach to public health, um, one that involves uh, kind of grassroots connections and cooperations, one that uses um, kind of what's called appropriate technologies um, to try and uh, improve the health of as many people as possible. Um, that's a horizontal approach in contrast to what's called vertical approaches, approaches that are highly technological, top-down, and not necessarily sensitive to local attitudes and understandings. And traditionally, vaccines have actually been a canonical vertical approach um, in the kind of language and history of international health. So to me, it's really fascinating that the kind of successful promotion of the classic horizontal approach of primary health care um, in some ways can be uh, traced to depend on uh, successful epidemic control in China, which in turn depended on vaccination, historically understood as a vertical intervention. Um, and perhaps it simply speaks to the ways in which these different contrasting approaches actually have a lot more in common than one might think. Um, but I think it kind of speaks to also the significance in um, China's promotion of this rural health model um, and the particular view that it has. Of and boy, uh, the moderator now just takes the cake and makes the connection for you between this episode being momentous. Momentous. Well, they know full well that this is momentous because they chose to, to record this now. Um, because it's momentous. And now we're going to seep in some current events and how this whole study and how China's handling vaccines and vaccinations is now being seen as a model for the rest of the world. So in case you didn't get the point, here it is. As of that relationship between um, state and people uh, and the ways in which that played out in global health. Absolutely, and it's um, it's a really momentous um, um, right relationship that uh, the WHO starts to to promote in terms of of um, of talking about China's successful epidemic control and you know horizontal approach to to public health, um, and then to to see how how that plays out in you know in in the world, but also in different other countries. Um, right, uh, whether it's Europe or you know it's it's Latin America or it's uh, it's Africa, and you know the the connections that start to form from there, and then our own understanding being um, altered, right, um, to to mm -hmm. grasp all of this and understand how how history is is being written um, in this way. Um, I mean, I would 
love to ask more questions, but I think we already <laughs> have taken a lot of your time. So um, I was wondering um, whether you could tell us more about your current projects and what are you you working on right now? Sure. Well, I've got um, two projects that I'm spending a lot of time thinking about. Now, <clears throat> we're going to roll back the tape a little bit because I got too far to the end and we skipped some stuff. Patriotic Hygiene Campaign was created as a propaganda tool to say that the Americans in Korean War were using biological weapons and therefore the Chinese who were fighting there had to, or in general, as national defense, had to all get vaccinated. And this is straight up propaganda and this nationalism and this anti-Americanism was being used as the fervor for behavioral control and the militarization and weaponization of the vaccine. Um, yeah. And it is that broader geopolitical configuration that gives rise to the patriotic hygiene campaigns, which actually form the backbone for many of the immunization drives uh, of the early 1950s. Um, so the patriotic hygiene campaigns um, are a program that emerges out of the Korean War uh, and uh, China's involvement in the Korean conflict uh, on the part of North Korea against South Korea and the United States. Um, and as Ruth Rogowski and Albert Cowdery have explored, um, these campaigns actually respond to a very specific allegation on the part of China and North Korea uh, that the United States was conducting bacteriological warfare in North Korea and Northeast China. Um, so as I say, Kaudry and Rogowski have done a lot of work on that particular kind of story, but it gave rise to, and it offered justification for, um, a set of nationwide hygienic campaigns. Um, and again, it's quite interesting because it harkens back to the wartime use of vaccines in a military context, as a strategic uh, means of protecting the health of a national population. Um, but here being uh, used in a context that is um, extremely and vocally anti-American. Um, and so it's really in that context that we see the establishment of these new patriotic hygiene campaigns um, that are kind of repeated, that are involved in mass inoculation work against things like small... So just want to note that Venus has risen. She has now taken her place in the sky. The clouds have disappeared. It's 425 and it's a beautiful, beautiful night. I've only counted about four cars so far. Air is nice and clean. Turns out that the um, plants um, do not produce oxygen when there's no sun. They might even absorb it, but still, the air is really nice. And um, I just skipped over a huge section, and you're going to have to listen to this podcast. I'll put a link in the show notes to your, you know, if you're interested in all the details, because we're not going to play an entire podcast here. We're just clipping the juicy bits and the interesting bits to give you a starting point for your own research. 
but uh, she's talking about how China broke with Russia and then uh, went and started to uh, invest into the non-aligned third world. So Africa, Tanzania, um, Southeast Asia, and they would send these barefoot doctors, these rural, they had this rural health model that was very promoted and mediaized, mediated, whatever, promoted and propagandized. And um, they were uh, setting up relationships to all these other countries and sending them vaccines and promoting their own rural health system and integrating the other countries into their own. And I think that's probably when um, China also set up its relationship with Albania and had a momentous failed relationship with Enver Hoxha and communist Albania. We're going to have to uh, do a whole episode on that. <clears throat> and today, China owns, and Albania is next to Yugoslavia, and China has been taking over, as I said, Montenegro, but they also bought or took over an airport in Albania, and they're doing other moves over there. So we can see their own uh, strategy there, which will have to be covered. Um, <clears throat> but let's just play this short clip, and she's basically culminates the whole thing in saying that the WHO thought that China was doing a great job, and that they're that they have become the model for the future. But if you listen to the whole podcast, you'll know that this model of how China does things came from the occupational forces from the League of Nations and others, the Americans supporting the Kuomintang, the um, resistance to communism. And um, so we created the, the system over there that was then taken over by the Chinese and then held up I mean, taken over by the communists and then held up as the model. So really, what we're seeing as a model of, let's say, forced immunization has been being developed in China through law and cohesion and a state that puts the value of the society over the individual where the individual really has very little value. Um, <clears throat> and must uh, submit. And this also goes into the freedom of speech talks we had before, where in communism, the value of the individual is subordinate to that of the collective. So this is being held up as the model, as the way to go by the World Health Organization. So if you ever have any questions about where this is coming from, now you have some answers and some points of reference that you can research yourself. And I think the thing to stress here is really that it was China's successes in what was called epidemic control that I think really helped provide convincing evidence 
that its royal health model was a viable one uh, and one that gained traction with a variety of stakeholders so that by the end of the 1970s, the World Health Organization cites China um, as a significant model for its new health policies of what it calls primary health care. And so success is... Now, I'd like to also provide some insights into our podcast here as I see it. I think that it's very interesting that more people are listening to this show, and I do appreciate all the listeners, and I want to say thank you for listening. I have been practicing and improving on my show as we go. This is an experimental podcast. Everything we do is in flux. It's an emergent system where we observe what we're doing. We iterate over it. We try and improve on it as we go. And also we're building up a neural network model ourselves as we go. We're building up a whole brain pattern that hasn't been there before, which is the podcaster brain. And you start to see things as what would be good for the show. And you start to understand um, why people do the things that they do. And also you understand why you want juicy things that are propagandized just to get listens, clickbaits. And we see, we're learning from everything. So, I do think that a raw show like this is still possible and provides value to the listener because we're giving you some interesting clips that you'd never hear from anyone else, even if the presentation isn't as amazing as someone who's been doing it for, you know, 30 years. This is our, still our first year eight months into the podcast, 80 episodes. Whew. Well, we're going to continue on this project, and I hope that you will continue to listen. So that's just a little interlude. And I like to say that people who talk about their own podcast or talk about themselves, it's really a form of advertising. So don't say you don't have advertising if you're talking about your own podcast all the time. Right? It's either the topic is either the content or the topic is yourself. And if the topic is yourself, then that's a form of advertising in some way. You're like praising yourself. So yeah, guys, get over it. Um, and I hope that I also give you some kind of balanced uh, viewpoint and not have too many biases in this podcast. Um, <clears throat> So, uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's see if we can find any more clips in this uh, vaccination thing, and then we're going to close it up. So now for something completely different. Sir Bemrose is going to give his take on the Joe Rogan experience moving to Spotify. And he says, nothing you've ever said, Joe, is that interesting, that we're going to install the Spotify app. And I agree. I'm not going to install the Spotify app. And, hey, the last episode I just saw on my feed from Joe Rogan, 
is Miley Cyrus. So if that's a sign of anything to come, it's going to be all downhill for Joey. But hey, we've got alternatives popping up. And if you want to hear some crazy random talk, you know where to come to because we got it right here. Thank you, Sir Bemrose. I hope that you uh, don't mind me clipping your show. I'm going to give you a link and a tweet. Boy, this is a scary clip. But Gary Knoll also likes to scare you. But this next one is from Gary Knoll, and he's talking about, he plays a clip from this lady, Hollander, who talks about the exact same topic we're talking about before, about the individual versus the collective. Now, she's more on the side of the individual, and she tries to build up the case for that. And Gary is saying that New Jersey's coming to mandatory vaccination. Uh, <clears throat> they're going to pass a law. So, but he also likes to scare people. So we're going to see what happens. Don't panic yet, guys. But this is an interesting clip. Let's listen. Whoever pays a price for the deaths they cause. So we're going to hear from Mary Holland in a moment. Please stay with us. An honor to be here. I want to start by asking a couple simple questions to be answered by a show of hands. How many of you have ever, for any reason, been critical of the United Nations? Security Council, peacekeepers, budget issues come to mind. I see a lot of hands. Okay. And how many of you have ever been critical of the United States for any reason? Foreign policy, <laughs> domestic policy, rolling the primary elections, right? So we're here at the UN, we're in the United States, but the vast majority of us have been critical of these institutions at one time or another. To me, this is like asking, are you alive? <laughs> are you breathing? Are you a thinking person? It is human and normal to be critical. Almost all of us have been critical at some point because these are complex institutions with varying actions and inactions all the time. But now, if I ask you, have you ever been critical of your country's vaccine policies, you may be reluctant to raise your hand. And for good reason, because in the supercharged public discourse about vaccines, were you to answer, yes, I have been critical of some aspect of vac vaccine policy at some time, you would likely be branded anti-vaccine, that fundamentalist boogeyman term, and not by a militant or fringe publication or spokesperson. You might be branded anti-vaccine by the likes of the New York Times, the New England Journal of Medicine, the World Health Organization, and by spokespeople from National Centers for Disease Control and National Pediatric Associations. Your views on vaccines might be considered outside the ma mainstream and equivalent to the views of those who deny climate change you might be considered, as I have sometimes been, a flat earther. No matter if your critiques were categorical or that you truly oppose all vaccines for all people at all times, or if you simply believe, as many people here and I do, that mercury should never be a preservative in any vaccine anywhere in the world because there are better and safer alternatives. Many in this, thank you. Many in this audience here today are branded anti-vaccine, although that is a gross distortion. We are called this primarily to marginalize and dismiss our views. But just as most of you are critical of some aspects of the UN and of the US, but think that they are important institutions, most of us have views that are nuanced, pro-health, and pro-safe, affordable, 
necessary and effective vaccines or sane vaccines. So my focus today is on the role of law in protecting human rights when it comes to vaccines. How can we balance the rights of the collective versus the rights of the individual? Vaccines, by their very nature, are a population-based medical intervention. If enough people take this medical intervention, then the so-called herd will be protected from the circulation of a communicable disease based on the theory of herd immunity. Although individuals receive vaccines, the rationale for vaccines is for the good of the individual and the society. One of the core purposes of the United Nations set forth in Article I of its charter is to achieve international cooperation in promoting and encouraging respect for human rights and for fundamental freedoms of all. So the UN and the international community have obligations to respect human rights related to vaccination. But how must nations in the UN do this? This is an important question that deserves scrutiny as it profoundly affects both individual and public health. Since World War II, the international community has recognized the grave dangers in involuntary scientific and medical experimentation on human subjects. In the aftermath of Nazi medical atrocities, the world affirmed the Nuremberg Code, which stated that the voluntary consent of human subjects is absolutely essential. The International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights further enshrined this prohibition against involuntary experimentation, stating, no one shall be subjected without his free consent to medical or scientific experimentation. Such a prohibition is now universally recognized so that some courts and scholars have pronounced the right to inform consent as a matter of customary international law. In other words, it applies everywhere, whether or not a country has it on its books. It, and it's the same as the norms prohibiting slavery, genocide, torture, and piracy. But what about informed consent in the area of treatment, including preventive treatments like vaccines? This is a controversial issue today in many countries, including the United States. In 2005, the UN Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, addressed this issue, adopting the Universal Declaration on Bioethics and Human Rights based on a consensus of 193 countries, including the United States. The participating countries hoped that this declaration, like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights before it, would become a set of guiding principles. On the issue of, of consent, the declaration states any preventive medical intervention is only to be carried out with the prior free and informed consent of the person concerned based on adequate information. It further notes that the sole interest of science or society is not sufficient. This pronouncement is the extension of the medical oath attributed to Hippocrates 2,500 years ago that doctors must work for the good of their patients and never do harm. Abbreviated as the first do-no-harm principle, this credo embodies the precautionary principle in medicine, clearly placing the interests of individual patients above the interests of the collective or so-called herd. This precautionary principle leads directly to the view that vaccination policies must be recommended, not coerced. The doctor-patient relationship depends first and foremost on trust, and coercion undermines it. When the doctor-patient relationship is based on coercion, trust is a casualty, and doctors then serve the state, and by extension the society, above their individual patients. This is a slippery slope where civilized medicine has too often derailed in the past. 
Dr. Leo Alexander, the chief U.S. medical consultant to the Nuremberg trials, warned in 1949 that from small beginnings, the values of an entire society may be subverted. He pointed out that long before Nazis came to power in Germany, a cultural shift in the medical community had, quote, already paved the way for adoption of a utilitarian, Hegelian point of view, with literature on the euthanasia and extermination of those with disabilities as early as 1931. Following the medical precautionary principle, the default position for vaccination must be recommendations, not compulsion. Individuals for themselves and their minor children should have the right to accept or refuse the preventive medical interventions based on adequate information and without coercion, such as the threat of loss of economic or educational benefits. Informed consent must be the default position because compulsion on its face not only undermines trust, but limits the fundamental rights to life, liberty, bodily integrity, informed consent, privacy, and parental decision-making. Many developed countries' vaccination policies embody this principle of childhood vaccination recommendations, including conference co-sponsors Germany and Japan. Other developed countries that achieve impressive public health without resort to compulsion include the United Kingdom, Australia, Austria, Denmark, Iceland, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Sweden, Norway, Finland, Denmark, South Korea, and Spain, among others. Nonetheless, the Universal Declaration on Bioethics and Human Rights does permit limitations of fundamental rights, but these limits must be imposed by law and must be, quote, for the protection of public health or the protection of the rights and freedoms of others. Furthermore, any such law needs to be consistent with international human rights law. International courts have developed a test to assess whether restrictions of fundamental rights are legitimate and lawful. The test studies whether, measures, whether a measure is lawful, strictly necessary, and proportionate to the risk. The state enacting the restriction bears the burden of proof that the compulsory medical intervention is lawful, strictly necessary, and proportionate. Generally, strict necessity must be the least restrictive alternative to achieve the public health objective, and non-coercive approaches must be considered first. Thus, the state must show that a less restrictive alternative is not feasible before adopting a highly restrictive or coercive one. In addition to these criteria, if a state does, does mandate vaccination, then it has an affirmative obligation to provide an effective remedy for those who have been injured as a result. Like all prescription drugs, vaccines carry the risk of injury and death to some. The guarantee of an effective remedy is a basic pillar of the rule of law in a democratic society, and the remedy must actually be an effective one. It can't be an illusory remedy, which in fact provides no relief. So... She'll be on the air next week, and she will give us more of this. And also, most importantly, what can you do when this inevitability of then maintaining uh, med mandatory vaccines? Now New Jersey is another state that's going to mandate the vaccine. And now Vermont this morning said they're passing legislation to ma mandate the vaccine. So remember, once that mandate goes through, every... Okay. So now, for something completely different, we're switching to the Tom Woods podcast, where he has a guest who's going to explain to us what postmodernism is and critical theory. So basically, he's saying that everything is biased, truth is political, and politics is power. 
So whoever has the power defines what is true and what our biases are. Introduction to Critical Theory follows next. And he gives an overview. We've done this before on this show, but we're going to do it again. And, um, yeah, the, the, the um, intolerance or the suppression of what is seen as the sources of fascism or power, but everyone can be labeled a fascist, as we noticed. Um, <clears throat> basically, the use of censorship against anyone and everything that you want to destroy is what we have seen in previous episodes being used by the communists is being defined here in Mar- by Marcuse and it's being taken up <clears throat> it's being taken up as well by um, people in America in a nutshell Critical theory is a completely separate branch or nearly completely separate branch of European philosophy that extends back to about 1920. It arises originally from the Marxist thinkers, uh, Lukács, Gramsci. Eventually you had uh, Walter Benjamin and then Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno. And they had this view. I should just say what their purpose was. They were Marxists and they had seen the failures of Marxism to manifest and they were trying to figure out why. And so they were turning to the nascent fields of psychology and sociology primarily to try to make sense of it. So on one level, there was the attempt to bring Freudian psychoanalysis into Marx's analysis to marry Marx and Freud. They also turned to the um, sociology primarily of Max Weber Gramsci was very interested, for example, in describing how the elite in society construct a culture that dictates how the, I guess, middle class or the even lower class will think about the world and accept their lot. And so they tried to start getting into the heads of ordinary people to try to figure out why they're voting against their own interests. Uh, And in particular, what against their own interests means from their perspective is not Marxist. They're not doing a Marxist revolution. And This developed over the course of the 20th century. These people started in Frankfurt, Germany. World War II, they were also mostly Jews. World War II started to break out. Not the best place in the world to be as a Jewish thinker. So they took off to Geneva, I think in the late 1930s, and eventually moved to the United States. Um, The post-war critical theory school was headed up by a guy named, primarily by Herbert Marcuse, who was at Columbia University, and Marcuse was the one to identify that, in his opinion, we live in a permanent threat of fascism in a world where fascism has come about ever. And so we have to repress anything that could lead to intolerance or fascism, including by violence. He called this repressive or discriminating tolerance. And he was also probably the first significant thinker to shift so you can think of Marxism as being focused on economics and the, the Frankfurt School shifted the focus to culture and Marcuse very explicitly shifted the focus to matters of identity politics. He very explicitly in One Dimensional Man talks about the need for, which is his most famous book, for the need for, for thinking in terms of, of minority races 
kind of rising up against the systems of oppression that he saw as interlocking with capitalism and other things. He inspired a generation of very radical activists who most probably prominently or importantly, Angela Davis, who's getting a lot of press again today. She's still alive. Angela Davis uh, was at UC, I think SD, with Herbert Marcuse for a while and saw him as a mentor and became very radical. Uh, She said that he radicalized her, in fact. And um, she informed the black feminists who later, as we turn in cynical theories to try to describe, took up postmodern tools to continue the radical activism around 1990. I think she was at University of California, Davis, at least at one Davis, point. Davis, yes, 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 that's right. Yeah. Sorry, Davis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, by the way, in parentheses about Angela Davis, that as there's been this talk about defunding the police and talking about prisons and prison abolition and stuff, I've seen on social media people saying, what a shame we're not hearing from Angela Davis. We should Angela Davis should be front and center in America right now talking about prison abolition. And I thought, but in the 70s, when there were prisoners of conscience behind the Iron Curtain, and people turned to Angela Davis to see if she could use some of her influence to get them removed. Okay, so now this next clip is going to talk about the uh, connection between uh, postmodern philosophy and critical theory, where you can only trust your personal experience or what your family members have told you and all other knowledge is to be discounted as propaganda so to say and that plus the uh, critical theory um, gives rise to censorship of the other and um, an interesting uh, hashtag name calling uh, result bind into a single worldview now that that we're we're seeing in the so-called woke movement. And the critical way of viewing the world is that a couple of things that traditional theories about the world like science and philosophy or rationality are not sufficient to fully understand the world because it doesn't deal with moral problematics. It doesn't deal with taking ideas out that cause problems. Uh, in in the sense of establishing and creating systemic oppression. And so that moral adjudication has to be added to the evaluation of ideas. And so what critical theory does is it separates the world following Marx's idea of conflict theory to to the letter. It separates the world into classes of oppressor versus oppressed. The oppressor class is usually unaware that they're participating in oppression and they need to be awakened to it and and guilted out of it and overthrown. The oppressed class is usually driven into false consciousness by their oppressors to accept their oppression and they need to be awakened to a revolutionary consciousness called critical consciousness that makes them want to do this. So it's a way of viewing the world where there are the oppressed and those who oppress them with a very clear moral dynamic of who is good and who is bad. Those who are supporting liberation are good. Those who support the status quo are bad. And that's that's the critical theory worldview. It's a very seductive worldview if you happen to be sociopolitically aggrieved. And so it makes its way out into the world through activists who have taken up this worldview, literally teaching people to think that way. And that's relevant because they took uh, the critical pedagogy movement started in the 1970s and by the early 1980s had basically turned most of our colleges of teacher education into 
critical pedagogy schools that were teaching them to see the world through this particular lens, systems of power, oppressor versus oppressed, in a zero-sum conflict, and to make that a educational priority. So it also made its way out into the world through teaching people to think this way. The postmodern way of thinking about the world is that we can't trust things like science, we can't trust things like reason, everything is biased, our own lived experience is the only trustworthy thing, and when that ended up getting mixed with this uh, very radical critical identity politics, then it became identity groups have their own knowledges, those knowledges, if they are from an oppressed group, cannot be challenged, if they are knowledges from a dominant group, they must be interrogated for their biases. And so it's a way of viewing the world that feeds very, very powerfully into ideas of victimhood or grievance as mediated through these concepts of systemic oppression. And they are very seductive ideas. So it all seems very abstract, but at the bottom of it is a worldview that is very easy to take up, can be very seductive because it gives many people a way to completely deny their own responsibility for any of the bad things that happen to them or the ways that things aren't working out or their lack of success, while it gives other people a perspective in which they can become something like uh, miniature civil rights heroes who we all venerate merely by engaging in kind of strange verbal, uh, almost symbolic activism like Okay, people, I think I'm going to close this episode out because my battery is running low. I'm going to turn my phone off and enjoy my walk now. So we're going to continue our series of episodes on this topics on these topics. And um, <clears throat> it's also how we started the podcast on clips um, on the censorship and the radicalism of the uh, Marxist uh, critical theory. And I hope uh, you enjoy the show and see you soon.